Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come into your presence today and we know that we are accepted, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and what he has accomplished on our behalf to redeem our souls. Father, we come before you today and we have spent a week as pilgrims in a world that is grating to our existence. Father, there is wickedness that abounds all around us. Father, even think of how last night in this city at an amusement park where people were going to have fun, there were individuals shot. Father, the, the effects of sin are everywhere. The curse works its way through your creation. And as the sons of God, Father, our hearts, our souls cry out for salvation. And Father, we thank you that that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so, Lord, today as, as we look at your word, particularly as we Walk through a a difficult passage, Father. May your grace be abundant. May your spirit work within us. And may we not get fixated on on minutiae in the passage. But, Father, may we rejoice in the victory that Jesus Christ has won. That as he sits at your right hand at this very moment, he ever lives to intercede for us. So, Lord, we rejoice in this wondrous hope, a hope that is not based in any merit of our own, but that is found, that our only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness alone. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit today. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are, Lord willing, going to be finishing our look at 1 Peter 3 as we wade into an exceedingly difficult passage of Scripture. Um, We'll go ahead. We're going to begin our reading in verse 18, which will be a little bit of review of what we looked at last week, and then we'll work our way through to verse 22, and then We'll come back and jump into the passage. Peter writes in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. What we're going to see in this passage is the pilgrim's hope of victory. The pilgrim's hope of victory. And likely as we read through that passage, there were a number of things that perhaps jumped off the page and you're like, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And in all of that, Peter is driving us to recognize that our hope for victory in this life must be placed in the risen Christ. And that if our hope is placed anywhere else, there is no hope for us. Now, 
Let's talk a little bit about the difficulties in this text. I had mentioned, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, I made reference to this, and then I mentioned last week, you know, if, if I wasn't committed to sequential exposition, reading through what God has given us, I could just skip over this and go to chapter 4. Uh, but God's Word is given to us, it's sufficient, and it has something to teach us. So I, I want to, first of all, dispel any myths that you may be expecting here this morning. I am not going to provide for you some amazing explanation of this passage that you're going to be like, oh, that is it. How do I know this? Well, Martin Luther, a man much more skilled and gifted intellectually than I am, of this passage, he makes this quote. He says, a wonderful text this is. And as I've studied this, I've become more and more convinced of the glories of this passage. A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. This is Luther. So that... I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. He goes on, I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So that's what Luther was saying. Um, So I have no delusions today that I will do so today as well, that we are going to solve the many difficulties in this particular passage. And so if, if I explain something, I'm giving you my take on this. If you disagree with me, that's quite all right. When we get to heaven, we won't care who was right or who was wrong about this. So I, I want to talk, we're gonna, I'm going to hit some of the major issues first, and then we'll come through and look at how this supports Peter's call for us to place our hope in the risen Christ. So there's two real difficulties in this passage. The first has to do with what in the world is going on in verse 19 and 20. So what it, when is Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison? Who are the spirits in prison? When is this happening and how is this all being worked out? And then the second, the second issue deals with what seemingly goes against the great of those who proclaim salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone because Peter makes the statement baptism now saves you now we do not believe that in what's called baptismal regeneration that baptism or the act of baptism is that which saves us and we're going to walk through and and discuss both of these things but regarding the the verses 19 and 20 there to start with there are three main views that are out there in fact There are really five main views, two of which are sort of subsets of these three views I'm going to give you. And in one of the uh, commentaries I read, based on the way different people look at different things, it could be said that there are 180 possible interpretations of this passage based on the things that we're dealing with here. But these are the three main views. What does it mean that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Well, The three main views of this are Christ sometime after his resurrection, but before his ascension, descended into hell and proclaimed the gospel to people who died without repentance and faith in the Old Testament. And specifically, it refers to those who died during the flood, giving them a second chance to repent and trust in Christ's work of redemption. Um, There are a number of reasons why this is not the view I'm going to be taking, but I think the most is just comparing Scripture with Scripture. Paul tells us that we have this life, and then after this life there is the judgment, that there there is a finality to what we have in this life. And so if we do not repent, if we do not turn to Christ while we're on this earth, then there remains nothing but the judgment of God for us. Um, what you'll find is that Roman Catholics who have the doctrine of, the pur- of purgatory, they will appeal to this passage to some extent, and Mormons as well, who believe that, everyone will, that Christ will do this to everyone who dies without repentance and faith. They will appeal to this passage for that. And I think we'll see clearly why, as we look through the passage, why that's not the case. The second view that is probably the most popular view in evangelical circles today is that Christ, sometime after His resurrection, but before His ascension to the Father, He descended into hell and proclaimed His victory over sin and completed work of redemption to fallen angels. This has to do with the the, um, interpretation of what it means when it talks about the spirits in prison. And that His 
proclamation was not for the purpose of calling them to repentance. In fact, in Scripture, we nowhere see the idea that angels are given an opportunity to repent of their rebellion against God, but rather it was a demonstration of His victory over these principalities and powers that had been um, defeated. And so that is a very common evangelical view of this passage today. And if that's the the view you take, that's great, but it's not the view I take. The view I'm looking at here is this third option, and that is that Christ proclaimed through Noah a message of repentance and righteousness through faith during the 50 or 70 years in which Noah was building the ark before the flood. Um, This is the interpretation I've settled on. This is an, an older interpretation. It's not as popular. So if you were to read a lot of commentaries, they're going to give you all sorts of reasons why I don't hold this view or why they don't hold this view, and that's fine. Uh, but as I studied the passage, this is sort of where I've landed. Um, now, it's important to note in this particular view, like who is it that's doing this proclaiming and in which he went, in which is refer in verse 19, in which refers back to Christ being made alive in the Spirit. So in the Spirit, and I think Spirit should be capital S, so the, the Holy Spirit, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits that were in prison. And that prison, there's two different views on this. It is either referring to those who were chained to sin. Now, if you remember what God's assessment of the world was before the flood... Every thought and intent of the heart of man was what? Only evil continually. So there is a sense in which sin has has bound people so that the only thing they're seeking to do before the flood is wickedness. There also is perhaps an idea that he's referring to his proclamation to the spirits which, if we could add, are now in prison. So these are saints, or I'm sorry, these are rebellious people during the time of Noah. They have died in the flood, and then they received what is promised. They received the judgment of God and are currently um, in punishment for their sins. And so the prison there would refer to hell. Uh, The reason why I, I don't think that the spirits that he refers to, the spirits in prison refers to um, demons, or angels, fallen angels that have gone on, is because of the way that God waits for their repentance. In verse 20, he says, they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And that term waited has the idea of expectation, so that God is waiting for for them to repent is the idea. And again, that's something that we don't see regarding demons. And then the final question from an interpretive standpoint is, does baptism save? And the answer is yes and no. All right, Not the physical act. And Peter makes it abundantly clear that the physical act does not save. When he says it is not the washing away or not the removal of dirt from the body, but then rather he points to the spiritual realities that lie behind baptism. Our union with Christ's death and resurrection. It is a physical expression of the spiritual realities of our conversion. So there's your crash course in that. And if you're just as confused now as we were before, that's okay. We'll touch on these things as we go through the passage. But I want to specifically today look at three things about how the pilgrim has a hope of victory. And the first thing we're going to look at is the proclamation of the pilgrim's hope of victory. The proclamation of the pilgrim's hope of victory. Now again, last week we looked at verse 18 and it speaks about how Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And we talked about the gospel realities that come about as our union with Christ gives us death to sin and new life in the spirit. But now that message, that message that is the great hope of pilgrims, Peter points to Jesus proclaiming that message. I think it's important for us to recognize that as the proclamation of this hope of victory abounds, it must be Christ-centered. The pilgrim's message is 
Christ-centered. If we were to go back and look at chapter 1 and see who Peter is writing to, he's writing to strangers, foreigners, exiles, to pilgrims, people who do not belong in this world. And so we are to be like our Savior. Our Savior did not belong in this world. He walked and talked and preached and did miracles and did amazing things in a world that hated Him, in a world that turned away from Him. And so He tells us when He's on earth, if they did so much th- such things to Him, what are they going to do to us? The same things. We can expect to be, to be treated as though we don't belong here. But not only are we to follow our Savior's path of suffering, we're to follow our Savior's proclamation of the gospel. We all are called to take this message and preach it to the very people that are inflicting suffering upon us. And this is important for us to keep in mind. This is where I think what Peter is saying fits with the over in these passages, what with the overall sense of what he's been talking about. We're suffering for righteousness sake. How does that happen? Because we proclaim Christ. We proclaim him and him alone. We are to take the gospel. And that gospel is given for us in verse 18. And all throughout verse 18, there is one person who is doing the work of salvation. Who is it? Jesus Christ. And so as we proclaim the gospel, we must be Christ-centered. In fact, Jesus, as he's praying before the Father in John 17, before he's going to go to the cross, he asks the Father not to take us out of the world. Now, how many of you wish Jesus would have prayed something different? (laughs) Please take them out of the world. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to deal with the suffering and the difficulty of life? But that's not what Jesus prays. He prays to the Father that we would not be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept from the devil, the evil one. And then he makes this statement, they're not of the world, we're pilgrims. We don't belong here. Just as Jesus is not of the world. So we're to be sanctified in the truth of God's word. And then as we're sanctified in that, Jesus, as the Father sent the Son into the world, what does Jesus do for us, tell us to do? He sends us into the world. So do you see the connection as a pilgrim that we are called to take the message of the gospel to a world in which we do not belong? As strangers and foreigners, as pilgrims, we're not called to withdraw from the world. We're called to engage with the world with the gospel and the hope found of Jesus Christ. And that's where what Peter is telling us, people are going to cause suffering. You're going to suffer for the very sake of righteousness. You're going to follow in the example that Christ has given that he points to in chapter 2. And so as we do that, there's going to be a big temptation in our hearts to grow bitter and angry and to lash out at those who are inflicting the suffering upon us. And so our call is to be Christ-centered in our proclamation of the truth. Now, why does Peter choose Noah as the message here? Because in, in the, real, the reality is, is that everyone in Scripture who spoke, Old Testament and New, that's recorded for us, they spoke as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So why Noah? Why this story? Well, I think it's to remind us that no matter how bad our society gets, we're not to withdraw, we're to engage them with the gospel. You know, societies, we look at society today and we think it's pretty bad. There's a lot of evil and wickedness that goes on around us. But just think back to your high school years when you were learning about Rome and and the Roman Empire. It was filthy with wickedness. Human life wasn't respected at all, born or unborn. There was constant um, sexual promiscuity that went on. 
I mean, it was a wicked, wicked society. And so you can imagine, here you are, a Christian, taking the message of the gospel, and people, for their own entertainment in the society in which you're sent, they will go to coliseums, they'll go to arenas, and watch you be torn apart by animals. And they'll clap and laugh when that happens. So you can see the degradation of society even from that perspective. And so Peter points individuals who are suffering in that way and said, well, look at Noah. Again, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we look at the society around us today, and it's, it's bad, but it's not as bad as it was in Rome. And Rome likely wasn't even quite as bad as it was at the time of Noah. It was wicked. And so what are we to do? What are we to do in a society that we don't belong? I think, first of all, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts and see, are we grieved by the wickedness of the society in which we live? Or do we go along to get along? We must be like righteous Lot, who went to a place like Sodom and Gomorrah and his righteous soul was vexed there. Are you vexed by the wickedness of the world in which you live? It's one of the indications that you don't belong here is your mourning over the sin of our society. But then the, the response isn't to retreat within. You know, it's not for us to, to come here and build big fences around this property and put up little shacks and, and we can all live here in a commune and stay away from society. That's not what God calls us to. He sends us into the world. And so we see that Noah is just like us. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, after the writer of Hebrews had talked about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, he talks about how they all died in faith. They didn't receive the things promised, but they greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were what? Strangers and exiles on the earth, the same way that Peter describes us in the first chapter of his letter. So when he points to Christ proclaiming through Noah to the spirits in prison, it is a call for us to do what Christ has done, what Noah has done, what Christ did through Noah, to be the message of hope in Christ alone and to not compromise that message. Now, this is why it's so important that we don't compromise that message. Is Jesus the only hope for the world? So what do we do if we tell them that they can have hope in something else? We rip away their hope. And so we must be willing to stand and proclaim that truth regardless of the consequences, regardless of the suffering that it may bring upon us. We must be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, ambassadors for who? Christ. And notice, who makes His appeal through us? Who? God. In the same way that Christ made His appeal through Noah in the time of Noah, so Christ makes His appeal through us. And our call is to, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And it's interesting, 2 Corinthians 5.21, how does that reconciliation work out? For He made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. It's the exact same thing that Peter said in verse 18. So as we see this proclamation, this Christ-centered proclamation, it must be focused on our Savior. But then secondly, we see that this message is necessary. Notice what's said here in verse 18. Or, sorry, verse 19. So, in which Christ went and proclaimed through Noah to the spirits in prison because they formerly 
did not obey. The world in which we live does not obey the call of the gospel. It's interesting, we live in a world today, particularly in America, that is saturated with gospel witness to some extent. Now, there's elements of error that have crept in, but America is a quote-unquote Christian nation. We're very familiar with the message of the gospel. So what's the problem? I mean, if, if evangelistic efforts have been going on for decades, for centuries in America, I mean, this is the land where, where the great awakening happened, where Jonathan Edwards spoke about the wrath of God and, and people were literally shaking in their seats. What's happened? Why isn't it working? People do not obey the message. They don't obey the message because they suppress the inward consciousness they have. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1. In fact, they not only do not obey the message, what do they do to the messengers? They persecute them. They hate them. They kill them. Christianity is the butt of everyone's joke in modern society. They want to inflict suffering and pain upon us because we speak of Christ. And as I mentioned, we have a tendency to get angry when that happens. Nobody likes to suffer, right? And let's just be honest, in America, our suffering is hardly existent. There are people in nations across this world that would die for the sake of the gospel. We worry about maybe losing our job. We wring our hands that churches might lose their tax-exempt status. And listen, I'm, I'm aware that that makes life difficult. It's, it's part of, it would make things for us here as a church to operate very difficult. But you know what? That's nothing compared to still having my head attached to my neck. So what do we do to people who, how do we respond to and view people who are inflicting this suffering upon us? And, and we, we view them as enemies. We view them as, with, I think, unfortunately, to some extent, with hatred. Look at what you're doing to me. We, we internalize and personalize the persecution so much so that it just all becomes about us. But if we are to live for Christ, our lives are all about Him. And so the Apostle Paul who had the out as a Roman citizen. He said, look, if, if this guy would not have appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. But Paul continued to press into being incarcerated, into eventually losing his life because he felt that it was more important that the people who were persecuting him heard the message of the gospel than it was for his own personal safety or convenience. That's how we should view those who are inflicting this suffering upon us. They need to hear this message because they don't obey the gospel. In fact, it's important for us to recognize, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, that God has overlooked man's sins, but He commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. That's the first word of our gospel witness. Repent. Turn from our sins. Why? Because God has what? Fixed a day. I, I, when I hear this, I hear God's words in Genesis 6 that He determined to destroy all life on the earth at the time of Noah. Now, what's amazing here, in God had, in Noah's time, he had fixed a day that he was going to destroy the world. Was that day the next day after he made that determination? He gave them decades. And notice what Peter says. 
that while the ark was being prepared, God was waiting patiently for repentance. And so we must do the same thing. We're, we are like Noah, proclaiming Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 1, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in who? In Christ. And it affects the way we live. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that since the world will be judged and it will melt away, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Listen, this world out here that hates us, they are destined for a day of judgment before a holy and righteous God. And right now, just as in the days of Noah, so God is patiently waiting to save. And He has chosen us as the messengers, as the ambassadors. And so, when we think about this day that is set, it makes it all the more important that we do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but we encourage one another and all the more as we see what? The day approaching. Because if we go on sinning deliberately after we received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of what? Judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See, here's the only difference between Noah's time and our time. Noah's world was destroyed through water. Our world will be destroyed through what? Fire. And these, these are not like hyperbole. These are realities. This is not just a story that God says to scare people. It is what's actually going to happen. God will judge the world. And so, in a world that is inflicting suffering upon us, the fact that they're inflicting that suffering is an evidence that this message is vital, that it's necessary. That God is using us to take this message, and He is patiently working to save His people. Which brings us then to the third point, that the pilgrim's message is fruitful. You say it was? Well, look at what Peter points out. He says that while the, the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, how many? Eight persons were brought safely through water. Now, one of the joys of serving a sovereign God is that we go with confidence. Will God save? Will God save? Yes. And so it, it gives us strength. It drives us to take the message. See, even as things look really bad, even if we're sent into a world where the thoughts and intents of its heart are only evil continually, God still saves. But I think it's important to note that that accomplishment is based on God's designs and not our own. How many people were saved? Eight. Praise God! Eight were saved. Boy, this surely should be a rebuke to the church growth movement. Those who gauge ministry success by the numbers that enter into a building. We tend to gauge ministry success that way. You know, we look, and it's something I struggle with. How do I know that I'm being effective as a minister here at Bible Baptist? Well, the parking lot's filled and, and the chairs are filled. But you know what? The fruit of a gospel witness does not always look like oodles and oodles of people. It's not always Pentecost where thousands come to Christ in one day. It may just be eight people in our lifetime 
You know, I think about this today. Let's say you were to live back in the time of Noah and you were to go to Noah's church. I know he didn't have church like we do, but let's say you were to go to Noah's church and you would walk in the doors and you would see seven people in the chairs and Noah preaching. And guess what? Everybody's related. You'd walk into that church and I would probably have the same thought. I thought, man, this place is dying. God's certainly not working here. Look at how few people are here. Without giving any type of consideration to the message that Noah was preaching. Small numbers are not necessarily a reflection on the health of a church or the message that's being proclaimed. You know what it was a reflection of for Noah? It was a reflection of of the society in which he lived and its depravity. So, how should we assess the fruitfulness of our gospel proclamation? Does it seem like Peter is like, oh, only eight people got saved? I mean, I mean, there were, based on some estimates, there were millions, possibly billions of people on the earth at the time of the flood. And only Eight survived. Praise God. You realize that you are here today because of God's salvation of those people. And so is every other person on the face of this planet here because of eight that God saved. We should give thanks to God for any number He saves by His grace. Must not let our expect, we not, must let go of our expectations and leave the results to God. Our message is fruitful. God's word will not return void. It will accomplish His purposes. So we must go knowing that this is our hope of victory. You realize the gospel is not chained. Even though we may one day be chained, the gospel is not chained. So we must proclaim our hope of victory. But then secondly, we see the demonstration of the pilgrim's hope of victory. And here we come to verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saved you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter now turns to baptism. And as you're reading through 1 Peter 3, you're reading through the book, it's sort of abrupt. All right? He comes and then, boom, he starts talking about baptism. And it's even more difficult when he talks about baptism corresponding to something. Um, now, I say this very cautiously because I'm not 100% sure that I'm 100% accurate here on what I'm thinking, but let, follow with me, all right? The question is, what does baptism correspond to? Almost every commentator I read talked about it pointing back to water. The, baptism cor- back, the waters of baptism correspond to this. And I think we can see how that makes sense. But I think that what, when we come to verse 19 and 20, Peter is sort of putting all of this in parenthesis because he's talking about the gospel, Christ suffering for sins, the righteous for the righteous, and then he talks about being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. And so the way I'm looking at this, and if you want to disagree with me again, that's fine, um, but the way I'm looking at it is these, verse 19 and verse 20 are parenthetical. So the this that baptism corresponds to is actually the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he bears this out later on in the passage, so I don't think it's a huge jump to do that. I think when he talks about baptism corresponding to something, he's speaking about it corresponds to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so baptism demonstrates our death to sin through Christ's death. And I'm not going to camp here long because we hit this last week. 
But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, again making the connection with baptism, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into what? His death. And so as he goes on later in, in this passage, we are to consider ourselves, what's our relationship to sin? We're dead to sin. And so baptism is a demonstration of our death to sin. And it is also a demonstration of our new life through Christ's resurrection. Now there's one very clear application of this truth that is the main thing that makes me a Baptist. I am a Baptist pastor. I make no apologies for being a Baptist. I'm not a big B Baptist, but I'm a Baptist. You come in, you walk in the doors, and what does it say above the thing? Bible, Baptist church. I don't talk about being a Baptist that often, but here I think it's appropriate. Probably the main thing that differentiates Baptists from most every other denomination is the idea that of confessional baptism or believer's baptism. We believe that baptism is only appropriate when someone has come to conversion, when it is a real, sincere conversion that's happened in their life. So we don't baptize infants. We don't baptize babies because they don't have the capacity to understand those spiritual realities. And I think here, Peter is highlighting that. Baptism, which corresponds to us being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, it has to have a real reality in our spiritual lives for it to mean anything. Baptism is also important. It's not an extra ancillary part of the Christian life. So much so that Peter connects baptism and salvation, pointing to the, to the realities that baptism points to as that which saves us, but he speaks of it like it's that which saves us. In other words, it's so important, we are commanded to do it. And how do we know it's important? Who is our great example in baptism? Who did he need to be baptized? What did John the Baptist do when he came to him? It's, I'm not baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And so it is to demonstrate that we have died to sin and received new life from the Spirit in Christ. And for that demonstration to mean anything, it has had to have actually happened in our lives. We must have come to true conversion. Notice how this new life is lived out. Peter points us to that. He speaks about how this, the waters of baptism or the act of baptism saves us, not the removal of dirt from the body, but rather it's the spiritual realities that lie behind it, and particularly the new life we have by our union with Christ as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And that good conscience comes through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. We now walk our lives being free from the filth of sin, having been washed by the blood of Jesus, having come through the baptism waters as a representation of that so that we are raised out of them to new life. And what does that new life show itself in primarily? We are able to do what Peter said in verse 18, Christ did all of this for, that He might bring us where? To God. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us what? Draw near. Want to know what the Christian life is about? It's drawing near to God every moment of every day. We have full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That same idea is what Peter points us to. We have an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is baptism? It is a demonstration of spiritual realities. 
dead to sin, alive to Christ Jesus. Which brings us then finally to the substance of the pilgrim's hope of victory. We see that this substance begins by our hope in Christ's resurrection work. Look at verse 22. Christ raised from the dead, and then what did He do? He went into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Our hope is found in the risen Christ. Why do we meet on Sundays? Because that's when Christ raised from the dead, the first day of the week. You know, we tend to focus on that on Easter Sunday. But that should be our glory and our joy every first day of the week. We should be rejoicing that Christ has entered into heaven and is at the right hand of God right now. This is a reality for us today. Christ the Lord is risen today. And the response is, hallelujah. And now as our Risen Savior, He is our great high priest. Look at what the writer of Hebrews tells us. We have a great high priest over the house of God. Now we draw near. This priestly work that Christ does is done in heaven. He's entered into, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but where has Christ entered as high priest? Into heaven. Where does Peter tell us Christ has gone? He's gone into heaven. And he is at the Father's right hand. He sat down after offering for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And so, the one who has made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and, sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest, how long? Forever. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. There were lots of former priests in the Levitical priesthood. But they couldn't continue in their position because of what? Death. They died. Aaron died. Levi died. But Christ holds His priesthood permanently. And He continues how long? Forever. So, consequently, He is able to save what? To the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He is always living to make intercession for them. You know this world that is continuing to inflict suffering on those who proclaim the gospel? Do you realize that Christ has entered into heaven so that even the greatest sinner among them can enter before God through Jesus Christ? So that someone who holds the robes of people who are hurling stones at a proclaimer of the gospel, that that man can become someone whom God uses to write most of the New Testament. That's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we hope in that resurrection work, and then we hope in Christ's resurrection position. Christ has gone into heaven, verse 22. He's at the right hand of God. And then notice what he says. With angels, with authorities, with powers, having been subjected to him. Boy, this is is truly a hope of victory for pilgrims. There is nothing on this earth that is not subject to the power of the risen Christ. Nothing. 
you know, as we suffer, we can maybe get a skewed view of the power of those that are inflicting the suffering upon us. I mean, after all, the saying goes, what, you can't fight City Hall. You know who has fought City Hall and won? Jesus Christ. So, we can look at the massive legal power of our government. We can look at the power of of the world's superpowers and the military power they have. You know, we can look at at the power that's just in one, one warhead from an ICBM. And I know... You know, we thought that we had put behind the anxiety of nuclear war, but it seems like it's been brought fresh to the forefront now. And do you realize that Vladimir Putin does nothing outside of the subjection of Jesus Christ? Do you realize that Joe Biden does nothing outside of his subjection to Jesus Christ? He is subject to Christ. Do you realize that the devil himself has been subjected to Jesus Christ. This is glorious hope for pilgrims. And so, when Peter says in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? Who is there? Is there anyone greater than Christ? No. So, verse 22 becomes the foundation of what he says in verse 13. That even if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we can take it to the bank that we will be blessed. We have a sure hope of victory in Jesus Christ. Let's live like it as He's called us to proclaim the gospel and to live lives of holiness justice and goodness before Him through His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh, Lord, we thank You for the victory we have in Jesus Christ. The One who has gone into heaven and has appeared at Your right hand and has had all authorities, all angels, all powers subjected to Him. Father, this passage should should emphasize to us more. It should punch the idea that we cannot hope in ourselves. We haven't these great victories won, but Christ has. And He calls us to repent and trust in Him for that victory. Father, may we live that out every day of our lives by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading.